right, you all may be seated. And as you are seated, please open your Bibles to Genesis 30, where we will continue on today in our exposition of, of Genesis. As you see in your bulletins, I have titled today's sermon, We Have a Competition. We saw last week from Leah there was a, a, a bed of desire for her husband, and what it was that she wanted was children. So we saw the first four children that were born. Uh, these are of the 12 tribes of Israel, and today we will continue on with that, and we will get to uh, 11 of the tribes that are now born. I, by way of reminder, as last week, since we are continuing on with the same passage, there is some sensitive material, and so if there are uh, young ones in the room, I encourage parents to exercise discretion as you see fit. I will handle this text in some ways similar to how I did last week, but I will be as sensitive as possible. More so than that, I think it's important for us to remember that the Word of God is living and breathing and active for all who hear it. There's benefit for those who are single, for those who are married, for those who are children. It's in this room. And to that end is my responsibility as, as the one opening God's Word for you today to handle it with care. So to that, I will do my best in trying to do that for us today. We will go ahead, though, and we will hopefully by now be in Genesis 30, and this is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and fully true word for us. Verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant, Bella. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, It is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. 
Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Please pray with me for illumination. Lord and our God, we thank you that you are with us, that these are your true and inspired words, that though the grass may wither and the flower may fade, the word of you, Lord, will stand forever. So we ask that you would apply this word to the lives of your people today, that my weak words would not be anything that gets in the way of what you desire to do, Father. We pray for families who are in this room that you would be working in their lives and that you would be building your covenant family in your church. We love you, Father, and pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so where we stand, as we've continued week after week walking through Genesis, the beginnings of humanity, the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel, as I already mentioned, we see clearly this is not a story that we would use for establishing our family. It's messy, it's difficult. It's important, though, as we see the building of this nation of Israel, that as we see what it is that God is doing, that we see that there is not something we bring to the table, that he does it in his way. God has powerfully promised to fulfill the covenant to Jacob. He's promised that all over Genesis already. We saw that even last week in in chapter 29 and that he had his first son that was born. We've now got four sons for him. The covenant, in many ways, one could argue, has been fulfilled. Though it continues, God had plans. God had desires to do more than just those four children. But as we walk through this, I think that we all see the messiness of this. That there is one man and four women who are now in the picture. That This is something that as we look at this, and as we, we, we look at the, the, the sermon that I will deliver to you here shortly, and as we walk through this passage that there is incredible depth to the human emotions and experiences of what it is that is going on in this passage. Now, much of what we see is similar to last week, but there is more for us. I believe that even as we walk through this, we're going to see the heart specifically of Leah and Rachel, and in turn, we're going to see our hearts as well. That there are things that the Lord desires and plans to teach us this morning. We're going to see three truths which you have in front of you within your bulletins. And thankfully, God does not leave us to ourselves. My hope and prayer this morning is that we would delight to see God keep His covenant whatever or wherever our hearts are pointed at. Again, there are three truths that you will see here. The first being that God is still blessing when our hearts are oriented in the wrong direction. The second being, when we focus on the world, God is still working. And our third is that the blessings of God will change our heart's posture. Now, as we have seen and heard and we'll walk through this, I am convinced that the riches of the living God are for us today. That He will truly change our postures, as we'll see in our third point. It's not so much through the preaching of His Word, but it is through the Word Himself, that Word made flesh, that of Christ, that of the written Word that we see and hear, 
He changes our hearts. So without further ado, let's get into our passage and look with me at chapter 30. We're going to begin to see our first point of our sermon here, and that God is still blessing when our hearts are oriented in the wrong direction. That's going to come to you from verses 1 through 13. We see this in such a way that actually as we walk through this passage, especially in the first couple of verses, we're now seeing envy, that competition that I talked about. We're seeing these sisters that are going to enter into somewhat of a competition. They're desiring to earn something. They're desiring to get something from their husband. They're hoping that Jacob will be able to fulfill something, that he will meet their needs. Now here's the thing that's important for each and every one of us. God is the author and perfecter of our faith as he is for them as well. And just like last week, as Leah who had difficulties and desired for her husband, and then the Lord met her and she saw that with four sons and finally said, this time I will praise you, God, with the birth of Judah. We're going to walk that, through that now with the other sister. We're going to see this by way of a little bit of contrast. So as we talked about last week, there is a dysfunctional family. We're not going to talk quite as much about the dysfunction of this family. We are going to talk about the 12 tribes and their formation. And I think as we walk through this, it's important for us to continue, continue to see how and in what ways God is building. Now the names that we see of each of these children mean something. That's an important thing for us to gather because I think sometimes we, we have names and we go, okay, they're family names or like my son's name is Wendling. But I saw that he maybe just looked towards me when I said that. But we look through these things and we say each and every one of us have names. But the names here in this passage describe heart postures. They describe conditions of what is going on for each of those who are receiving the names and it will be part of their journey and their story. But it talks to what their mother is experiencing as well in the giving of these names. Now it's actually something that actually if we get into this right now, I think we should look at the first couple of verses and see Rachel's posture. What does she says in verse 1? To her husband, give me children or I shall die. Give me children or I shall die. Incredibly strong words. And if we remember back to the patriarchs and those of Abraham and Sarah who desired and wanted and needed children for the blessing to continue, in chapters 17 and 18 of Genesis, there was similar postures. And maybe it was not as strong, and many will argue and commentators will say that this is not quite as strong of language, that there's a different degree of faith that is, having, that is occurring here, or a degree of less faith than what occurred in 17 and 18. But in chapter 17 and 18, we saw that the parents laughed, that Sarah and Abraham both laughed when they heard. Why? Well, they were old. They were 90 years, uh, Sarah was close to 90 years in age when she conceived finally. But I think it's important for us to ask, so what is actually going on here with Rachel? Why does she have such a strong, visceral response? It's not only a strong response to desiring a child and wanting the love of her husband. That is true. That is part of it. But there's a second component that she is wanting in into being a part of the fulfillment of the covenant. She is wanting to fulfill and to walk through part of that. That she knows that God has promised these things to Jacob. That she knows that these things are true. He's talked about them for decades now at this point. That he's wooed her, pursued her, has married her. And she's seen that these other children are bo being born, but not through her womb, not through her. She's beginning to wonder and trust, not just is Jacob going to keep loving her, because in that culture, that would have been an expectation that if you are walking out this uh, relationship and the dynamic of, of a marriage covenant that is not producing children, that there would be some concern, to put it mildly, in that time. 
and that there would be grounds for things that we would not consider to be healthy or right or good. So she's wondering, one, is Jacob going to love her? But two, there's a question, is God abandoning her? Has he abandoned her? There's this deep posture that she's saying, Jacob, you need to fulfill these things. You need to come in and meet me here in this place. Now, perhaps she's trying to appease Jacob, but I think that there's more to that, that she's also wanting and hoping to appease God. But she starts in the wrong place. She goes to Jacob. You take care of this, she says. And actually, what, what is the response? That he, he gets angry in return. He goes, hey, I'm not in the place of God. You should be orienting your thoughts and your language and your desires towards God. But what does she propose? She proposes, well, we've already got two in the picture. We've got me and my sister. How about another? We see that in verses 3 through 13, actually. We start to see this picture unfold that there are now others who are coming in to the family, that there are now others as God is expanding the kingdom. It's done in such a way that's messy. There's this quest for love, this desire for love. Again, it was a common practice to do this, to take on multiple wives. But that is not God's standard. As we talked about last week, we actually walked through Genesis 2 briefly, that we need to consider and see that God talks about one man and one woman cleaving together to leaving and to being a part of them. And yes, this is before the giving of the Ten Commandments that we see in Exodus. And so we have not officially received the law, but God has authoritatively, definitively written His law once and for all time. He's not a changing God. So it isn't not when He gives the law in Exodus that He is changing the standards. No, He's confirming what is already true about Himself, but He is further revealing it to His people. We're continuing to walk through and see in these types and shadows that Jesus is going to come, that there is going to be a Messiah, that there is one who is better, that the first Adam has failed, that there will be a second Adam in this picture here. Again, I say this more explicitly, that this is not for us to pursue polygamy or as what is trendily called now open relationships. It is not the acceptable practice then, now, or ever. Our God has one standard. And throughout history, the only orthodox standards has been one man and one woman. Although here we are in the patriarchs already walking through a messy passage, the formation of the human race, the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel, no less, that it's messy, that it has dysfunction. And I think it's important for us to actually say, hey, is this actually true? Because many times you will hear in our culture today, oh, that this is a man-made construct. This is something for us today. Well, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, though I do not espouse it for everything, I think it takes us back 500 years in history to show us what marriage has historically been about. If we look back to 1549, when this was written, this is what it says marriage is. The union of a husband and wife in heart was ordained by God for the procreation of children and the nurture and knowledge of the love of the Lord, for mutual joy and for the help and comfort given to one another in prosperity and adversity to maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ, upbuilding his kingdom, family, church, and society to praise his holy name. Now that's a very clear, explicit statement from 500 years ago of what family was. We can go back to Augustine, we can go back a thousand years before that, which I will not do, but if you want to, go look later for yourself. We see that there was a letter that he wrote to, uh, to a heretic about a thousand years before this, or over a thousand years before this, about the clear standards of one man and one woman. The clear standards of what it is that is clearly different than what our culture in this moment 
is saying we should believe, we should hold to. Genesis walks through the patriarchs not because this is a standard for us to aspire to or for us to even look to and say, hey, these are God's people. They get a pass. No, actually what we see is that there are consequences because of sin. That we'll walk out further in the life of this family. It gets really messy when there's four different families that are now under the head of one family. Each of us have messy, messy families. That though many desire to have healthy, orthodox, consistently God-ordained love, we still do look at what the world around us says and promotes and says that all love is love and that all love is good and that all love is true and to be pursued. Now that's absurd. We can see that immediately on its face that we know that's absurd for us to love in an equal way. We can love power. We can love money. We can love all kinds of things that are not healthy and should not be our primary focuses and loves. So our passion today is that really of about misoriented loves. We must be cautious, though, in this passage, just like Leah, just like Rachel, that we now see for us today, that we need to consider where it is that our hearts are oriented towards and the loves that we have within each and every one of us. Now, I did speak a little more explicitly than perhaps I wanted to at first, and as I put this together, I was convinced that this is one of the applications, and as we walk through passages like this, we need to walk through what are God's standards for us as his people in a timeless way. But I'm also aware that as we walk through a passage like this, that in a room this size, there are people that are confused and hurting and frustrated by what I just said and saying that God's standard is authoritative, definitive, and true, and unchanging. And you might be frustrated by brokenness that you have or brokenness that you see in this world or brokenness that we see of, of, of loves that are multiple loves all around us. And you might be looking at this and saying, but I want to love those people. I want my heart to be comforted in that way. I would encourage you this morning that God has a different standard, that when we see the world is broken, that when we see the world is not the way it should be, that we look to his standards. So not only do we look to his standards, we don't look to the world of what is broken, but we actually run to the Father. We run to the one who is the giver of the law, who is the giver of all things that are good. In the brokenness that we feel or feel through our neighbors or feel through our friends or CNN or Fox News or whatever it is that we're watching, run to the Father. Take your brokenness to him. Take the brokenness that we feel in this world to the only place that gives freedom, to the only one who gives true hope. Yes, there is a call to walk in sanctification as we walked through that a lot last week. But there is a call to be different, that there is a call to something different. But many have walked before us have struggled with these things all the way back to the patriarchs and seen the brokenness of the world. And unless the Lord comes back right now, many more will probably come after us and wrestle with the weight of the brokenness. We feel that it's broken. But remember, God has purchased hope and freedom and everlasting joy when we by faith trust and believe. And functionally, I believe this brings us to our second point, though. I think as we've seen that of family, it's important for us to walk through uh, the further context of what we're seeing, and this focusing on the world. Because we're going to see the pursuit, actually, of the world and some of the things that are good gifts, actually, in some ways, here in these 
this second area. In verses 14 through 21, we're going to actually walk through the focus on the world, but we're going to see explicitly that God is still working. Let me say that again. We see very explicitly that God is still working in this world. In relation to that, in your bulletins, you do have subpoints that you can fill in. That we're going to see point A is that of this. In verses 14 through 16, we actually see that the Son is involved in the fertility process. We're seeing that the Son is involved here in these, this passage in such a way that we'd go, hmm, there's something interesting for us. Perhaps we should explore this. What on earth is going on with the pursuit of mandrakes? Now, truthfully, I wasn't quite sure what a mandrake was when I read this passage. I've read this passage many times in, in my life, of, uh, and I thought, why have I never really looked at what a mandrake is? I don't really quite know. Well, a mandrake in that culture was something that actually was believed to be kind of an aphrodisiac that was believed to promote and help fertility. And so in this area of the world, mandrakes did exist, but they were actually a little more common about 100, a couple hundred miles to the east of there. So they could be there. And actually, it made me think about when I was preparing this, it made me a little bit think of pawpaws. Now, if you're native to Missouri, you probably know what a pawpaw is. Or maybe you don't, because they do exist here. But they actually exist more so in the historic, up in the northeast. I had a friend one time when we were out in Missouri and we were walking through some fields, just absolutely went nuts when he talked about this rare pop. Oh, it's a pawpaw tree. Look at this. This is so uncommon. This is incredible. Look at what's going on. And oh, we need the fruit of this. And it wasn't even fruiting at that moment. But we walked through this and say, oh, okay. It's an unusual fruit. It has unusual things that are promised. And so this is something that would be kind of like walking through the fields. Most likely that he's bringing fresh fruit to his mother. And he found this fruit locally, but it's a little bit rare. It's a little bit uncommon. But consider what's going on. That of Reuben... Likely, most commentators believe he's somewhere between 8 and 12 years old. What is he doing? He's bringing physical things to his mother. He's bringing physical mandrakes to her to help her continue on and to have more children. As it said already, our text said that she, she, the, the years have passed for her. But he is saying to Leah, his mother, hey, I'm going to bring you something. An 8 to 12-year-old bringing something to help her says something about the family dynamics of what was important. says something about what was being talked about on a daily basis, most likely. That here he is, he's bringing something, physical provision for his mother to try to help solve a problem in the family. And yes, there is an exchange here that actually happens. And I actually would argue this is further self-promotion. It's attempts at earning love and selling fruit in exchange for intimacy and further attempts at love, at that. A sibling rivalry of epic proportions. Man... This is not the picture that we saw at the end of chapter 29 of the woman who said, this time I will praise the Lord when she had Judah. I actually find a little bit of comfort in this, that the woman who was so certain in her posture a few years before is now using her son and her family and some dynamics that she's walking through, frankly, some sin patterns. That she's doing some things here that she will not be outdone by her sister. That she does not desire to have this happen, to the point that he is saying, okay, I am going to physically, her son is, I'm going to physically bring you something to help with this issue. And what does it do? Well, it actually gives way to a second tangible thing, and that is two more sons. That's our second sub-point. So we see two more sons, and we see that in verses 17 through 21. There's this picture here of God actually walking out in verses 17 through 21, this picture of saying, well, you're going to pursue these things? Okay, I'll still build my family. I will still keep my covenant. I will still do the very things that I've said that I will do. 
even when there's dysfunction, even when your heart posture is not that of continual praise, of resting in the fourth son that was born, that of Judah, and resting in that until the Lord called her home. No, actually we see the opposite here. We see that opposite in that her affections pull her in a different direction here in these verses. And actually, we see the names themselves. And as I talked about the names matter a lot, I'm going to walk through just a couple of these names. So this actually here in, in verse 17, uh, the reward will, or I, I believe better, or has come. It is that, that she's saying, hey, the reward has come. That's what Zebulon means, to hear these words. My, my, I, I'm going to, to walk through this. Or, I'm sorry, that was um, uh, the first son. But then we walk through the second son here in verse 20, that furthermore she has Zebulon and says, my husband is actually going to honor me. But what is she saying in verse 20? That my husband will honor me. It's not that God has already honored her. It's not that God has already provided for her. She's seeking the honor of her husband. She's not saying like she did after her fourth child that God has honored me and I will praise God. No, actually her affections are poured towards the earthly things and she's desiring sons and she has desired mandrakes and pursuing good things. The two more sons now do come, but it's seeking the approval of others over the approval of a God that already has been given. That the work is finished for, for her. That the emptiness of these actions actually continue to drive towards further earthly pursuits and drive towards things that will actually leave them empty. It's like each and every one of us, when we pursue things of this earth, if we pursue them to their fullest extent, we actually find that they will not satisfy, they will not comfort, they will not deliver what it is that we believed in our heart they would deliver and provide. Now, I think it's a really important thing for us to remember that we have to remember that the only true peace of this world that can and is found is through Christ. It is through the provision of who God has given for each and every one of us. Now, I think that there's an important thing. For those of us that are in Christ, we need to look to our third point. We need to look to our third point that we're going to see here in our sermon today. And that is how it is that he is functionally providing. What it is that he's going to do. Now, the blessings of God will change our heart's postures, as I said. And we're going to see that in verses 22 through 24. Because what happens here in these, 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 these short three verses, our first sub-point is this. God remembers Rachel. He remembers Rachel. He brings to mind, I think is a better way of reading that, but he brings to mind Rachel. And it then says, God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. Now again, we've seen this passage unfold with sisters competing that we now have four different women who have, have given birth to children from Jacob. But there's actually a rejection of that of worldly wisdom. That we actually see the provision of God showing up here with his wisdom and his ways, that he is saying, I will open her womb. I am going to do these things. The provision is coming from me. It is not coming from your own hand on your terms. Reminds us how powerful it is to be children of the covenant that we receive the blessings and promises of God, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has definitively finished. The work that he has done. How he is restraining sin through the power of a king. That we have a king, our God, who is caring for the world in a way that is best for his good and our benefit. It's not for the benefit of us, 
that if we constrain and refine our love, our desires, our affections of the world to our desires, we miss it. We miss what actually happens. And actually here in verses 23 through 24, I think we see a powerful picture of what actually happens as the posture changes. So we're going to see this. Rachel calls upon God. I say this definitively, and, and, and I think it's authoritatively. Rachel calls upon God, and I would actually argue for the first time in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 30. We don't see her calling upon God in prior places. She does use language of, of God that we see, and if you get into it, that's the language of Elohim. It's the language, language that's a little more general. But here in 23 and 24, we actually see this. In verse 24, and she called his name Joseph, saying... May the Lord add to me another son, or may Yahweh add to me another son. She is calling out as God has provided, as God has met her in this place, as God has given her the things that, yes, she, she has desired for a long time. She is receiving physically a son. You didn't see that when that came through her handmaid. She didn't quite have that same posture. She said, basically, I've been vindicated. I've been set right because of these things. But now she's actually saying... Oh, may the Lord add to me another son. But we look at this and we say, what is it that we see even in this? She calls upon God for the first time. May the Lord what? Add to me another son. So even in the provision, even in the good gift that she is receiving, she is desiring more and more and more. She's wanting things that she is, 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 is going to receive, as we actually will see, that she will receive another son. We will see that Benjamin does come, that there will be 12 tribes, not just 11, as we find ourselves here at this point. That she's receiving a gift from God, albeit physical, and her heart posture is changing. And so many times we do the same thing, that we start to receive good gifts from God, and we'll say, oh man, what a good gift, praise the Lord. But I want to encourage you for just a moment, because I believe that there's very good news for each and every one of us in this room. That as we walk through this passage, it's not that we are going to be provided for with physical good gifts every single time. I want you to hear this. The greatest gift you ever will receive is already purchased. It's already been done. We are to delight. We are to find ourselves praising the Lord, to be praising Yahweh, to be praising the one true God. Because salvation has come. Because unlike where they stood in that moment, that they were waiting for a Messiah, that they were waiting for the promises to be filled in a fuller and more visible way, we have seen that fulfillment. We have now seen that the Lord has brought and provided this gift for us. Now the language of here of building that of Israel is important for us to walk through, and as we walk through each of these gifts, and I'd encourage you all to go through later, as we don't have a ton of time together, to walk through each of these names and what it means and think through the heart posture of what was going on with the people, with those who were, one, going to receive this name, and that would be their name for the rest of their life, but two, what it was that was going on with their parents, what it was that was going on with their mother to choose to give such a name. So I think there's an encouragement here as we walk through this and consider this and think about what it is that God has done for us. What's it going to take for our heart postures to change? How and in what ways is he at work and moving and that he is finding ourselves in a posture and place of saying, I will call upon you because you are the living God. I will call upon you because you are good. Is it going to take mandrakes? hope not. Because you have the greatest thing. You have the greater provision already that has come. 
Christ himself. Mandrakes aren't going to take away things. Children aren't going to take away our thoughts. They're not going to take away our desires for fulfillment. Although children are wonderful gifts. Those of you who are kids in this room, you're a great gift. But we walk through this in such a way that we remember and see that God has a better portion in store. Himself. We will never be satisfied fully until we rest and the satisfaction and joy and provision of the living God. In fact, we can pursue things that are even good gifts and start pursuing them dysfunctionally and start pursuing loves that are unhealthy. So I'd encourage you even today, if you find yourself pursuing some of those, those loves that you should not, some of those loves that are, are out of order, that are sinful, come talk to me, come talk to one of the elders. But more so than that, actually, I would encourage you to go talk to your Lord. You can make things right now, that he right now wants to cover those sins. He right now invites you to walk free of the sins of your past, of your youth, of your old age, wherever it is, and to grow in sanctification, to remember that he's provided a covenant family around you, to remember that he and his good pleasure and joy didn't create this as the ultimate perfection that we are to strive for, but it's our eternal home. Redemption is certain for our sins because it's already been provided. The riches of God are for all of his covenant family. And we find ourselves, whether we're born from the right dad like Jacob or whether you're adopted in like me, somewhere between those two, we probably all fall. But God has made a way. He has made space at the table for each and every one of us. His word is instructing us here today. We should live in light of that and the rest that is purchased for us for eternity. Brian Chappell speaks about this frequently, that we have the unlimited grace that overcomes our sins. Don't quest for more of this world. And I would even not to just quest for the gift of grace, but to, to quest for the giver of the gift, to quest for God himself, to meet him and see his standards to flee our sin. Remember that very soon we will have a heavenly, sinless home where after our faith is made sight, we will live with Him forever. Live in the joy and that eternal hope that has already been purchased. Truly walk in this freedom. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we thank You today that You are with us that even in passages like this that tells us about dysfunctional families and tells us more so about, we, we think of our own hearts often as we read passages like this. Would you be moving in our lives so that we understand your word more clearly, but we also understand your love for us and we walk in the freedom and the grace and the redemption that you have truly already purchased and given. Help us, Jesus. It is only by your power and by the power of the Spirit at work within us that we are able to be made right. Help us to remember these things and comfort us from your throne. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.